It was late February, 1829, and Mrs. Samuel Harrison Smith, a longtime Washington resident who knew most of the capital city's important people, was not happy. Our streets are now deep in slush, snow, mud, mire, she complained. The winter had indeed been unusually cold and wet. But on March 4th, a brilliant sunrise promised a warm and early spring day. It was, declared the New York Post, as if nature was willing to lend her aid towards contributing to the happiness of the thousands that crowded to behold the great ceremony. The great ceremony was, of course, the inauguration of Major General Andrew Jackson as the seventh President of the United States. It was not to be a solemn event. Previous presidential inaugurals were generally attended only by members of Congress and other dignitaries. This one would be held outside, on the east front of the Capitol building, and would be open to the public. The city had never seen anything like it, and entrepreneurs were quick to take advantage. Room rents tripled, as did the price of food and firewood. One observer saw great numbers of young men, some of whom look as if they had footed it all the way from Tennessee, walking arm in arm and gazing on all around them with the vacant stare of undisguised curiosity and wonder. Some slept on the floors in taprooms, and many in less choice places, according to another. With what anxiety and impatience have thousands looked forward to the present period, and crowded from all parts of the Union to our metropolis to witness the splendor of General Jay's reception and his inauguration, Mrs. Smith reported. On the day before the ceremony the streets were so crowded that passage was nearly impossible. By ten o'clock on the 4th, Pennsylvania Avenue was jammed with a variety of carriages, from the most opulent to the most humble. By noon, Several thousand had gathered in front of the Capitol building, a much smaller version of the one we know today, with their eyes fixed on the front of that edifice, waiting the appearance of the President in the portico. Tragedy had darkened Jackson's victory. His beloved wife Rachel had died only a few weeks following his election, and many, including the General himself, blamed her death on the attacks leveled at her by elements of the opposition. As he made plans to travel to Washington from his plantation outside of Nashville, the grieving president-elect sent word ahead that he wanted no celebratory parade when he arrived. Traveling up the Ohio River, he had been met at Cincinnati by a quiet and respectful crowd. Mrs. Francis Trollope, an English traveler who didn't think much of Americans in general, was nonetheless impressed. He wore his gray hair carelessly but not ungracefully arranged, and in spite of his harsh, gaunt features, he looks like a gentleman and a soldier. By the time his boat reached Wheeling in Virginia, there were more crowds, and in Pittsburgh the pressure from onlookers had become so intense that a member of the reception committee feared that Jackson and his friends might wind up in the muddy waters of the Monongahela. He slipped into Washington virtually unnoticed on February 11th. In 1800, Thomas Jefferson had defeated the incumbent John Adams of Massachusetts for the presidency. Now, with a cruel twist of irony for the Adamses at least, Jackson was about to replace John Adams' son, John Quincy Adams. 
When Jefferson took the oath of office in 1801, he was about to preside over a nation of fewer than four million people. Andrew Jackson's America had more than tripled that number to nearly 13 million. Then, Jefferson faced a Congress of 106 representatives and 32 senators from 16 states. Jackson was about to face a Congress of 213 representatives and 48 senators from 24 states. Washington, too, had changed. Government buildings that in 1801 had existed either in rudimentary form or only in the minds of architects now graced Pennsylvania Avenue and its adjoining streets. Hotels, shops, taverns, and bordellos were all within walking distance of one another.